Hello. Hello. Welcome to episode one of the Talk Business With Me podcast, Generation 3. Yes. I am your host, Aki. And I'm Michael. And we are brought to you by the School of Business here at Portland State University. Yes, we are. How are you doing today, Michael? I am doing very all right. I'm very glad to hear that. I am a little bit tired. Midterms are already coming up. Like, how does that even happen? Honestly, the days are just meshing for me, so mm-hmm. I'm on the same page as you are about this. Yeah. yeah. But we're happy to be here, and we are happy to be sharing this next 45 minutes with our listeners. Yes, I am very excited for you guys to listen to this week's episode. We have quite a show lined up for you guys. This week, we had the honor of being invited out to Arborbrook Wines. It's a local vineyard in Newburgh, Oregon, and it was gorgeous. The view there was so insanely pretty. Mm -hmm. We got to talk with Charles Hessen, the director of hospitality at Arborbrook Wines, and we got to learn a bunch of great information about the wine industry, as well as taste some really tasty wines. Yeah, I went into that interview just being a wine dummy, truly. But coming out of that interview two hours later, I definitely feel like I learned a lot. I feel Mm -hmm. a lot more knowledgeable in wine. I feel like it sort of instilled in me a passion of wine. I've always kind of enjoyed wine, but I never really knew like the information. Right. And coming out of it, like I want to go taste more wines. Like I'm now a wine enthusiast. No, same. No, I feel I did some research last night and I was looking at like just local vineyards that I can go to and join like wine clubs or like Mm -hmm. wine tasting events. Like I want to do the same thing. Like, did you know that a lot of vineyards make most of their money from wine clubs, not actually selling wine. <gasps> Shocker. Yeah. Uh, and let me tell you, <laughs> the, the wine that we tasted at Arbor Brook was by far oh, some of the best wine I've ever had in my life. Don't get me started. No, like, okay, I cannot drink red wine for the, like, I just can't drink it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely not. It tastes so disgusting to me. But the Arbor Brook Pinot Noir was so delicious. It was so good, right? It was amazing. Truly, I ended up buying three bottles of wine. (laughs) I wanted to buy their entire stock of wine. No, seriously, though. It was Mm -hmm. the best wine I've ever had in my entire life. Yeah, and you will learn all about it and how it's made and the history of the property in today's interview. So let's do this. Yeah. So I asked you just before we started about the vineyards that are under the Arborbrook Wine Umbrella, because Arborbrook is kind of like an umbrella company that owns a bunch of vineyards, correct? It is now. So our founder... Dr. Robert Gross was from New York. He's been making wine since he was in college. Mm. His wife, he met at a medical conference in Portland. She was from here. Mm. And he has a fascinating history. Um, He was an OBGYN in the US Army. Then he became a psychiatrist because he was interested in how the body affects the mind and vice versa. And met Corrine, his wife, in Portland. Her family owned 70 acres on Cooper Mountain. Wow and he wanted to plant grapes. So he bought it from her family and started planting in the early 70s. He got the plants from Dickie Rath, and that's how Cooper Mountain, the winery, started. In late 80s, um, he was farming conventionally, like everybody else, and there was a spray that they would put on the grapes to keep the birds off. And of course, the company that made it said it was safe, said it's not in the wine, And then it was actually a Canadian study that said, actually, it is in the wine, and we think it might cause Parkinson's. So our physician owner thought to himself, what else are we using that they say is safe? And it's not. That pushed him into organic farming, um, which he knew was safer for the consumer. 
Um, and then he met a famous consultant from California who was introducing biodynamic farming to some wineries down there. And they hit it off. And that gentleman convinced him to go full biodynamic. So we are Demeter certified, which is the worldwide body that certifies biodynamic farming and sellers. And what is biodynamic? The easiest way to explain it is, or the simplest, is that it ties organic farming somewhat to the lunar calendar. Um, you treat the vineyard as a, a living, breathing body. And there's different interpretations. So we don't always do exactly what the lunar calendar says, but it kind of ends up coordinating with the lunar calendar. It also sometimes involves animals. Our owners don't think animals are the most important part, although I've been promised goats. So hopefully we're getting some goats. Uh, but you use animals in biodynamic to mow, uh, and then, of course, they poop All right, right. and fertilize. But then you have to take care of animals. So it's mm -hmm. an, another part of the job. We do spray, but all of our sprays are made from ingredients that we grow. Okay. Um, so we have seven different preps, and they are flowers, weeds, tea. We're actually growing some outside of here outside of Arborbrook, there's a uh, valerian root, horsetail, and chamomile out there. Now, we, we, our big garden is at Cooper Mountain, where it's been since the early 90s. Mm -hmm. And Biodynamics was written by an Austrian, uh, Rudolf Steiner. He was a philosopher, scientist, educator, and the farmers came to him, and he wrote the book. Some wineries will do biodynamic practice, but they don't want to go through the trouble, and that's probably not the best word. The, the, it's a rigorous certification, and it's expensive. Mm -hmm. So some wineries will say, well, we're, we're going to do biodynamic, but we're, we don't, we're not going to worry about the certification, which I'm sure they're doing exactly what they should do, but we don't know. Our founder, Dr. Bob, is very committed to being totally Demeter certified. Mm. So What's happening up on Cooper Mountain, and I don't know the exact timetable, when he started planting in the 70s, it was agricultural land. They changed the urban boundary. Beaverton annexed it. They don't really want a winery in the middle of suburbia. Okay. So they will not let us do anything to improve the building, to add on. So we're kind of stuck with what's there. Mm -hmm. And he is selling some of those properties to housing developments and then reinvesting that money into things like Arborbrook. Oh, okay. That's smart. So there's only two brands, Cooper Mountain, which is 15 to 20,000 cases in distribution. If you go to the Cooper Mountain Tasting Room, you will not taste a distributed wine. You will taste a small production, direct-to-consumer only wine. Arborbrook is the other brand, which they purchased two years ago with the vineyard. We are less than 500 cases, so that's, that's boutique. And the plan is to never go above 3,000 cases and to keep it, uh, what we say, DTC, direct-to-consumer only. Mm -hmm. We don't want the Arborbrook brand to ever be distributed. In other words, if you want to taste Arborbrook wine, you have to come here to, yes. the, right. to right. the tasting room. Yes. Okay. We are trying to get into some local restaurants yeah. just to get exposure to the brand. Because the brand kind of went to sleep uh, when we bought it. What are what restaurants are you guys trying to like reach out to? We are already in. I just got in a few weeks ago into Joel Palmer House. Okay. Probably the most iconic fine dining restaurant in the Willamette Valley. I know they've been there more than 25 years. Wow. It's in a historic home in Dayton. 
They just did a renovation about six months ago. It is gorgeous. And they can boast, they're a second generation chef. They have their own secret places where they forage mushrooms in the Willamette mm-hmm. Valley. I tell guests, go there, but you have to like mushrooms and cream because that's in every course. I do like mushrooms and cream. I like mushrooms Then you need too. to go to the Joel Palmer house. <laughs> and they can boast the largest Willamette Valley Pinot Noir wine list in the United States. And they recently purchased some of our older wines okay. for their list. They went from 3,000 bottles about half a year ago. They're up to 6,000 bottles in their cellar. Wow. wow. It's an amazing experience. And then we're trying to get into some other earth and sea I'm chasing. And there's a famous new restaurant in McMinnville called Okta. So while we're on the topic of the wine, uh, we have a pour in front of us. Yes. Uh, Do you want to tell us about what you have poured for us? Yeah, so this is um, Pinot Gris, same grape as Pinot Grigio. Oregon adopted the French name instead of the Italian name because they felt their wine was more indicative of the French. This is about 100 cases. This is biodynamic fruit from the Johnson School Vineyard that we planted in Cornelius in 1999. Wow. So we currently have seven vineyards, two brands, as I said, and some of this fruit, well, one, two, three, three of the vineyards we planted, the other four vineyards were purchased, already established. And we don't even make wine from all this fruit. Very smart business plan. Barbara, Dr. Bob's daughter, runs the wine division. She has two siblings. And uh, one of the vineyards, Shahala Mountain Vineyard, we purchased in 2019. It is the third oldest vineyard in the Willamette Valley. It was planted, started planting in 1968 by Dick Erath. And we lease all that fruit to other winemakers. It is the most expensive fruit in the state. Wow, that is really smart. And it depends on the quality. Right. Um, But these winemakers want those old vines, self-rooted fruit. Mm -hmm. And we're seeing scores getting really close to 100 points. That's very impressive. So you're talking about like when you send a wine off to grading by sommeliers, they give it a score, yes. right? Yeah, Wine Spectator is probably still the most read and respected. There's former writers for Wine Spectator. They've started their own. James Suckling is very famous. Antonio Galloni, uh, he broke off from Robert Parker. Um, Robert Parker used to be the most influential wine scorer in the world. Wow. And But he's aging and retiring, and so people are trying to replace him. Uh, so the Pinot Gris is biodynamic, 2022, which was uh, weather-wise, I think one of the craziest years in the history of the Willamette mm-hmm. Valley. Uh, we broke all kinds of records. Right. Coldest, wettest spring, latest June rain. We had a, a terrible frost, like never been seen uh, in April. We were very late in the vineyard, and then... We were telling people from out of state, well, if we have a warm, dry October, this could be an amazing vintage, but we never have warm, dry Octobers. Warmest, driest October on record, which actually saved the vintage. (laughs) So you kind of won the meteorological lottery in in a way. Yeah, it made it extremely challenging, extremely nail-biting. And I talked to some winemakers, enologists, which are the chemists, and they said, and these are people with 10, 20 years under their belt, they said it was the first year they had ever seen the outcomes of the, the analyzations did not make sense. That they had never seen those kind of readings from that kind of weather. It just threw everything off. I haven't tasted anything from 22, so I can't tell you what I think about the vintage yet. So why don't we taste some of this? Yeah. So this is under the Arbor Brook label. It is not from this vineyard. 
but we can pull fruit from any of our seven vineyards and put the Arbor Brook label on it. Right. From my experience, being in the Valley 15 years, this is a fairly dry Pinot Gris. Larger production Pinot Gris that are made for distribution are probably a tad sweeter because that you can sell more of that okay. in distribution than you can really dry. What does dry mean? If you're not talking chemistry, what I perceive as dry may not be what you perceive as dry. Okay. We may have different okay. <laughs> views. This is a dry Pinot Gris. It's three grams per liter residual sugar. So in the tank, in the vessel, uh, during fermentation, the yeast is eating the sugar right. and turning it into alcohol. It's chemically impossible to have zero residual sugar, okay. but the winemaker decides when he or she wants to stop the fermentation and leave residual sugar. And it depends on the style. This is 0.3 grams per liter. Uh, the winery that I left six months ago was 0.6 grams per liter. It was twice the residual sugar of this. Wow. But that was a big production wine and it was made for distribution. This is 100 cases, direct to consumer only. Right. I'd say our wines lean towards old world, although there's some people in the wine world that want us to get rid of that term, old world, new world. Our winemaker's French, Gilles. He's from Bordeaux originally, and he knew biodynamic very well, so that's why it was a good fit for our company. He was hired in 2004. 30 years ago, old world and new world had very clear definitions. Old world was Europe. We would say lower alcohol, higher acid, maybe a little more earthy, a little funky. New world was North America, South America, Australia, New Zealand. Bigger, riper, higher alcohol, which that's what comes from being riper. More lush, maybe less acidic, uh, and more mouth-filling. Mm. And maybe more appropriate for just sitting and having a glass okay. without food. In 30 years, a lot of things have changed. The world has become a little more homogenous. Winemakers are moving to other countries. Winemaking is getting cleaner. That could be good or bad. There are uh, many wineries in Europe that have been slow to adapt to cleaner winemaking because they've been getting flavors for hundreds of years that they kind of like. And that's what I mean by funk. And it has become part of the wine. So they don't really want to change that. And again, it depends on how much wine you're making, but you can definitely still, I think, discern an old world versus new world. And it, sometimes it's weather, climate, winemaking, but it's, it's pretty, still pretty clean that old world is typically earthier, more elegant, more food friendly, okay. and new world is bigger, juicier, plumper, and what I have termed more appropriate for a cocktail wine. So just from hearing how you describe it, I feel like my preferences gravitate more towards the New World wines. Yep. Although I've also noticed that I really do appreciate a dry wine. Most okay. young wine drinkers start out slightly sweeter because okay. it's more palatable to them. And then usually with age, it seems like they lean towards the drier wines. You know, Robert Mandavi tried to make wine part of our culture, like Europe. I think he made some successes and it's changing and it could change again. But still, if you're born and raised in the States, a lot of times wine is not part of the culture. No, it's not, yeah. Mm -hmm. And you know, in Europe, still to these days, they give a little bit of wine to their underage kids. Sometimes they mix it with water, but you grow up appreciating wine and its qualities, especially with food. Usually there's always food. And again, you, you get 
more of an appreciation of how wine can be enjoyed with food, can increase the appreciation or the experience of right. food. And we're, we're getting it in the U.S., but the U.S. is a big place. Mm -hmm. That's very true. Do you want to maybe walk us through how you would taste a wine like this? Ah. So true, yes. Please tell me. So I'm pretty non-conformist. There's a lot of different tricks that I've seen wine educators and sommeliers do. I've seen them, you know, place their hand over the glass and swirl it in order that. to yeah. <laughs> trap aromas. And then when you remove your hand, it really, you know, burst out. I tend to just get the wine in my mouth. I do have a um, habit, and there's a great book called Euroanalogy, Neuroanalogy, sorry, Neuroanalogy, written by a Yale or Harvard professor. And one of the things he said that I've believed for decades is that when you get the wine in your mouth, you have to move it all around your mouth. Oh, okay. So, but the problem for me is I now do that with everything, like coffee, <laughs> anything. Um, you've got to get the wine. In the old days, there was a, a map of the tongue okay. that we would use for sweet, salty, bitter. Uh, they added umami at some point. And they've kind of done away with that because scientists have said not everybody's tongue is the same. And just because one person gets bitter or sweet in this point, it doesn't mean everybody is. Um, and that was kind of this professor's point that you literally, and I do, I will, it almost looks like I'm, I'm rinsing my mouth. You got to get the wine all over your mouth to appreciate it. Another point in this book was that, you know, if you're going to rate wine, if you're scoring wine and you're going to taste 40 wines in a day, you're probably going to spit because even spitting, you're still absorbing alcohol right. every time you put it in your mouth. But to his point, and I believe it, and this was the main thrust of the book, you don't fully appreciate or experience the wine by spitting because once you swallow, those aromas come back up into your nasal cavity, that's when you're really experiencing the wine. And he says, and some glass companies have come up with black glasses, so you can't see the color of the wine. Because as he, as he says, the minute your eyes see the color, the wheels start turning in your head and trying to tell you what it's gonna taste like. Mm -hmm. Wow, right off the bat, this smells amazing. Yeah. We're drinking out of very large glasses, <laughs> And I've noticed if you sort of <laughs> spiral it, there's enough surface area that coats the glass that when you take a whiff, it just hits your, your nose with yep. a bunch of aroma. Since nobody can see it, this is not the proper glass for Pinot Gris. A Pinot Gris glass would be a little more like this water glass, but a little taller. Um, because to your point, Pinot Gris is very aromatic. Mm -hmm. You don't need a big bowl to get your nose in. That's really closer to a Chardonnay glass. Chardonnay is not aromatic. So you need a bigger opening to get your nose in there to smell it. Uh, Pinot Gris, Riesling uh, are usually in a taller glass for aromatics and for temperature. You're stacking the wine to keep it colder longer. Chardonnay should be in a bigger bowl so that you can smell it and so that it can warm up a little bit. I have been using the wrong wine glasses for my wine. <laughs> I just have one Chardonnay glass and I pour any wine into that. I, I don't have a lot of different <laughs> glassware at home because I break glassware. This particular company, Riedel, they are geniuses in marketing and selling, and they have proven to their uh, devotees that they have scientists that study the wine and study the glassware and design the perfect glass for every varietal. Wow. Now, I think glassware is important, but I also think some of that is trying to sell more glasses. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, Explain the notes. Yeah, so 
on the front end, it was citrusy in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. I almost got like some orange peel. Also maybe like orange blossom, like it had some of that herbal yeah. aspect to it. And then sort of in the mid palate and on the bag, it almost got peppery. Not like the heat of pepper, but the flavor of black pepper. Am I like totally in the weeds or does no. that? No, no, that's awesome. That work? You want to write our descriptions? <laughs> sure. That's great. <laughs> black pepper or white pepper? Pink pepper, actually. Okay. Like, because it, it's a little on the sweeter side. It had the sweetness of like a pink peppercorn. I think that pepper is a very underrated spice. I could nerd out on pepper for a while, but the flavor often gets overshadowed by the heat. But if you are able to sort of put it in a context where you can remove the heat from it, it has a very nice, yes. fruity, herbal flavor to it. Which you can also get in coffee. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of what I'm referring to. Like, it had that nice, like, fruity, herbal, almost effervescent flavor of black pepper or pink pepper. Wow. And I'm, I'm leaning towards that's acidity. Mm-hmm. That's how you're smelling and tasting acidity. And acidity is very good for wine because it will keep it fresher in the bottle longer. Does it stay fresher because it stops the compounds inside the wine from breaking down on their own? Or is it because of more of like a sterilization where it keeps it clean? I think it's the first. The first. And I failed chemistry, which is one of the reasons <laughs> I'm not a winemaker. <laughs> but I think I've read enough uh, that I think it's it's the first. That's interesting. It keeps it from getting flabby. Flabby? Flabby. How would you describe that? Interesting. A California Chardonnay does not have acidity, typically. Okay. Depends on the region, depends on the winemaker, which you can add acidity if you're not Demeter certified. So we're Demeter certified in our vineyard and we're Demeter certified in our cellar. Okay. Which makes it even uh, more challenging because there's some things that we can't do that almost every winery does. And I'm not saying they're being bad. They're not breaking the law. It's not gonna kill you. It's the way wine has been made for centuries that we can't because we're Demeter certified. So there's a lot of things you can't do in the cellar. The three most important are we have to use natural ambient yeast. We can't use cultured yeast. And that can be a challenge when you're making 20,000 cases. In a really cold year, which we haven't had since 2011, you might want to add sugar. It's called chapitalization. We can't mm. because of our certification. In a really hot year, like 09, 2018, when sugars go up, acids go down. So you might want to acidify to balance the right. wine. Right. We can't because of our certification. So I'm not saying we're working harder, but our wines, anything Demeter certified biodynamic, the wines are going to be more true to vintage and probably experience more vintage variation. Interesting. So I've always been a little bit curious about this. How would you say is sort of the relationship between like two different vintages of wine from the same vineyard versus the same vintage of wine from two different vineyards? Like what is more similar? Ah, well, that's a tough one. So I, I do say that the Willamette Valley typically, and I use that word a lot in this business, the Willamette Valley typically doesn't have as much vintage variation as Burgundy, where we think Pinot Noir and Chardonnay were born thousands of years ago. The French fight the weather a lot harder than we do. Mm. Uh, they are mm-hmm. given a much harder deal. I say that we have less vintage variation than Burgundy. We have typically a little more vintage variation than California. Although if you went to California, they would say, don't believe him. Because <laughs> um, that might sound like we work harder <clears throat> in the cellar. Um, but typically their vintages are a little more consistent than ours. And then when you have vintage variation, you just fix the wine. You either add acidity, you add sugar, 
many consumers don't want to worry about vintage variation. They don't like vintage variation. Mm -hmm. They want their wine to taste the same every year. Mm. So they buy their wine from a large producer that's a factory that manipulates the wine to taste the same every year. And that makes some consumers really happy. And it makes some scorers really happy. Interesting. Sometimes these wines get great scores every year. But they're mass-produced wines that are not created out there in the vineyard. They're created in the cellar. But that's what sells. That's how you make money in this business. Wow. I would love to circle back more to the business side. I know you've mentioned some ways that wineries make money, both by leasing land and also wine clubs. Mm. But since this is a business podcast, I'd love to talk a little bit about the business of the wine industry and how wineries go about making their money. Well, a great way to make money is to make wine for other people. And many wineries do it, and they do it sort of under the, not illegally, but mm -hmm. they don't tell you because it's not part of their marketing to say, hey, guess what? We make actually make wine for five other small labels. That's the fastest way to make money. I even have a friend that started his label years ago. He didn't own any grapes, no fruit. He created a label. He went to a winery that had a brand, but that winery also made wine for about 14 other small producers. And he went to them and he said, I need you to find the fruit. You're gonna make my wine. This is how I want it to taste. You're gonna put it in my label and I'm gonna market it and sell it. That's the fastest way to start a label. And it's the quickest way for a winery to make money because all those clients that you're making wine for are gonna pay for all your equipment. So I am curious, what does the process for becoming a sommelier look like? And what does your day-to-day -day include? I will say that it's a lot of self-research, a lot of tasting, mm. um, which if you're not in the restaurant business can be very expensive. I was in the restaurant business for 25 years, so it made it very easy. I was usually tasting wines from suppliers or the owners, you know, the owner's seller, the owner of the restaurant. There are some people in the industry that will try to help you. There's some in the industry that don't want you in their club and they won't help you. I have experienced both. And we're talking about the quartermaster sommeliers. Um, so the quartermaster sommeliers was created in London in, uh, I wanna say the 50s or 60s. It came to the US, I think in the 70s. And that's the most prestigious certification, really if you want to work in a restaurant or you wanna buy wine for an airline, or I, I just saw a, a baseball team hired a master sommelier. Mm. That's the highest level. And I think there's about 250 in the world. And the good old boys that brought that to the US, again, really didn't want you in their club. I can remember when I was a very young man reaching out to two of them in Texas saying, I wanna do what you did, do you have any advice? They were not helpful at all. Hmm. Wow. Now, the culture may, may be changing. If you're a master sommelier, you still have to help proctor exams, educate people at events. I know one master sommelier in Texas, unlike any other master sommelier I've ever met, that actually started free classes. If you would come to his office at 8 a.m., he would help, That's, that should be the culture. Mm. but that was rare. And then I want to say right before the pandemic, they got some really bad press, the quartermaster sommeliers. There was an exam where the 25 or 30 people were seated and a master sommelier slipped answers to one of his buddies. Oof. It got found out and they disqualified all 30 participants. Oh mm. It's very expensive and painstaking to get to that point. So that gave them some bad press. And then probably during the pandemic, maybe, the Me Too movement, 
female sommeliers came out and said, yeah, that master sommelier said that if I accompanied him to his hotel, that mm. might help my... I see. And yeah. so they fired everybody on the board, mm. which was all old white guys. They hired a new board, which included females, people of color, and I'm not as involved as I used to be, but hopefully that will take them to a, a new level. Diversity. The wow. best course, if you just want to work in a tasting room or... Uh, it's called Wine Spirit and Education Trust. Hmm. It also came from London. Uh, it's now taught in Portland and at Linfield okay. in McMinnville. Yeah. I actually took that course about 12 years ago. I actually could take it again as a refresher because things change so much. But that's the best. And But it can be expensive, especially for a young person. Like how expensive is it? Uh, the one that I took was advanced or level three. And 12 years ago, it was $1,500. Oh, so it's probably way more expensive now. Right. Wow. Yeah. Okay. And then there's only one level higher than that. I passed. There's only one level higher called Diploma. Okay. But it's mostly self-guided, and it's several thousands of dollars if you want all the written material okay. and you order the wine samples from them. So it really is like a college course. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, it sounds like yeah. it. Just to kind of touch on your title, you're the Director of Hospitality yes. at Arborbrook and Cooper Mountain, is mm -hmm. that correct? I manage the hospitality program. Okay. Which is a, is a nice way to say that I guide our clients' experiences okay. to be fun, educational, unique, and customized. Okay. What was your first job right out of college? Uh, I was waiting tables in a Tex-Mex restaurant. How do you go from that to a director of hospitality? Like, what does that pathway look like? I think the restaurant business uh, was instrumental. I got passionate about wine. Okay. Tasting it, reading about it, taking these courses. And I, I had an Italian uh, maitre d' in Houston. He owned the restaurant. Uh, he was from Sardinia. And he was super important to my career. Okay. He taught me how to be a maitre d'. He taught me the physical part of being a sommelier. And I wanted to be as hospitable as he was. Okay. And I saw that people gravitated towards him and it brought people to the restaurant mm. because of his savoir faire. And <laughs> I don't know how to say that in Italian. And I give him credit. I left him because I was bored. <laughs> okay. But... He was instrumental in teach, teaching me how to seat people, how to design a dining room, how to make people happy and make people feel special. And that has affected my entire career. You have to make people feel great and special. And these days, tasting rooms, their challenge is to stand out. Right. Because right. there's new tasting rooms opening every day. Right. And the pie has gotten smaller because our tourism is down. So every winery is trying to figure out, again, how to stand out. Yeah. Is it the view? Is it the food? Is it the people? Yeah. The industry is having a hard time hiring the right people. Mm. Hopefully that's getting a little easier. But for a while, people were just, if you could breathe and walk, you could get a job. Okay. Because <laughs> there weren't enough people. I see. Mm -hmm. And you can't really, I don't think you can teach. You can teach hospitality. Yeah. You can't teach that attitude that it takes. Mm. It's yeah. not for everybody. Yeah, no, I, I agree. So people are looking for an experience, ultimately. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And especially in the 20s and 30s and early 40s. Right. For some people, I'm sad to say this, it's more about the experience than the wine. 
I think at the end of the day, really the takeaway is however you felt from the encounter. And mm -hmm. if the wine is fantastic, that's going to leave you with a great experience. But there's a lot of other factors that can come in yeah. to also improve the experience. Right. And the wine is, you know, just, I mean, it's an important part, especially if that's why you're here. Right. But the culmination of all of the factors that yeah. determine yes. how the experience yeah. was. You can make mediocre wine taste really good mm -hmm. with the experience. <laughs> yeah. So what is the Arbor Brook or Hoover Mountain Vineyard experience? Like if I were to come in here for a tasting room experience or like a club experience, well, what can I expect? Well, a warm greeting. Okay. We want to somewhat customize it. Okay. If you're not interested in agriculture, then I'm not gonna to talk to you about farming. If you're not interested in gardening or agriculture, I'm not gonna walk you out there and talk about agriculture. Okay. But most people that aren't in this industry are fascinated to hear what all goes into it. Right. So when the weather's nice, we've got a beautiful vineyard right there. I take people into the vineyard and we talk about soil, trellising, cover crops, harvesting, pruning. And for a lot of people, you see them at the end of an hour or an hour and a half, and they have a totally new appreciation for wine. Mm. Because it's like, wow, I didn't really think about all that that goes into it. Right. If you are more interested in history, then we'll talk about history. And this property has crazy history. If you're coming here to have a glass of wine and hang out with your friends and you don't really want us to bother you, then we can do that too. Mm. Okay. So and, but we have to size that up very quickly. Right, mm -hmm. right. Large percentage of visitors want to be engaged mm. and they want to learn. And if they want to try to teach me something, then I'm happy to listen and learn. And if somebody tells me something that I know is totally wrong, I'm not going to tell them it's wrong. Right. I'm going to tell them, wow, that's cool. I did not know that. I just learned something new. And how many cases of this wine would you like? Hey. You I'm here to sell wine, not you, argue. Yeah, you got to do yeah. what you got to do. Yeah. I've heard people <laughs> in tasting rooms do that. And I'm like, you're in the wrong business. Yeah. yeah. Uh, when we pulled in here, Charles was ready with a bottle of sparkling rosé and two glasses, <laughs> greeted us at the door. It was a very nice touch. It was, and we yes. thank you for that. Yes. Absolutely. It's, it's, that's part of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's fun. You enjoy your Even job? Even for me. Yes. Yes? Absolutely. I get paid to do this. That's so cool. what does joining a club look like? Yeah, wine clubs are an integral part of any winery's success. And there's variations, but I would say... You know, most wineries are going to charge you for wine three times a year. You're going to sign up for a certain amount of bottles three times a year. That's going to determine how much savings you get. Everybody wants a savings. They want to be treated like a member. Okay. They want the red carpet whenever they show up. And you better give it to them because that is, on average, I would say, tasting room sales and wine club sales are, if a winery is in distribution, which Arbor Brook is not because we only make 500 cases, but your members can be responsible for 60 to 70% of your revenue. Wow, really? That is a good chunk. It is a yeah. very good chunk. Wow. They get very privileged and they can be challenging, but they are your bread and butter. Wow. They're paying your electric bill. And they are ambassadors for you. Right. They're spreading the word. Right. Mm -hmm. They have your wine in their home that they're sharing with their friends. They can be incredible ambassadors. So does Cooper Mountain or Arborbrook have a wine club? Yes, both. And it's three times a year, four, six, or 12 bottles, 10, 15, or 25% savings, which is big. 25% mm -hmm. is a lot. 
So for our listeners, if this sounds appealing to you, if you like what you're hearing and want to come <laughs> taste these wines, check out the wine club. Oh, yeah. I know. I will definitely be looking into it. because Yeah, I was thinking that, yeah, too. I so was far, like, these wines are fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. And I will say, uh, for describing, this is a Chardonnay, right? It is. It's very good. I've noticed it's a lot. It's I, not your grandma's Chardonnay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't want to say it's flatter because that has a negative connotation, but the flavor is like more consistent across the sip. Like with the Pinot Gris, it started a little bit more mm-hmm. muted with the citrus, and then the flavor like ramped up like as you swish it through your mouth. With this, it starts with a lot of flavor, and it just kind of stays. And that's kind of Chardonnay. Chardonnay is um, a bit of an innocuous grape. Left to its own, it's not that interesting. And we say Chardonnay is made in the cellar. Pinot Noir is made in the vineyard. Okay. There's not that many different things you can do to Pinot Noir. Chardonnay, it's all about what the winemaker did in the cellar. Wow. So what did it ferment in? Was it stainless? Was it concrete? Was it French oak? Was it amphora? What did it age in? Any of those properties. And super important is the primary fermentation turns the sugar into alcohol. There's a secondary fermentation that turns malic acid which is sharp and tart, and it's in the grape, and it converts it into lactic acid, which is soft and creamy. So how much did the winemaker turn from the sharp, tart acid to the creamy acid? Mm -hmm. And it just so happens that there's an organic byproduct of that fermentation called diacetyl that happens to smell like butter. I've heard Chardonnay referred to as buttery before. And it's that second fermentation. Mm -hmm. This is, to me... And, and we, like I said, we all taste different. We all have different sensitivities, thresholds to flavors and aromas. I don't get any oak in this wine. I uh, charge that to my Texas palate. It only, so this fermented in stainless, aged in stainless for eight months. It only went into French oak for two months. And only a quarter of that was new. So only a quarter of the barrels actually had flavor, oak flavor. And this is probably about 20% of that malolactic fermentation. So we let 20% of the malic acid turn into lactic acid, and then we stopped it. And that's what keeps it crisp, age-worthy. It is very crisp and light. Because, mm-hmm. yeah, I've heard Chardonnay referred to as buttery. I'm not really getting that, that butteriness on this that much. It's more on the crisp, light, fruity side. And there's very few Chardonnays in this valley that you'll get that buttery. It's typically stylistic. We don't mm-hmm. want to make buttery Chardonnay, but people like it. Also, there's a plant or clone difference. Most of the clones that we have in the Willamette came from Burgundy. The clones that they have in California came from Europe, but hundreds of years ago. Mm. And they've changed to the weather, that climate, warmer and drier. Their grapes actually have more malic acid than our grapes. So Mm. when they do 100%, it's really buttery and creamy. Wow. Yeah, that's very interesting. This is a, a young Chardonnay that could easily age five years. A lot of people don't, well, knowledge is changing, but white wines can be very age-worthy if they're quality fruit, high acid. I would love to see this wine in five years. So could you describe a little bit about the aging process to us? Well, (laughs) I failed chemistry, but I can tell you what it does stylistically. I can't tell you what it does chemically. Sure. Aging almost any wine, and I'm talking past eight to 10 years. The alcohol is not going to change. That's going to remain the same. The acids are going to soften up. The wine is going to lose bright, fresh fruit. And eventually it's going to start taking on a little more earthy and savory flavors. Mm -hmm. And that's probably why Americans tend to drink their wine young. They're not into that earthy, savory stuff. Mm 
Mm-hmm. And I think, I don't know what the, the numbers are, but per capita, I bet Americans drink more wine as a cocktail than any other nation on earth. I'm totally guessing. Uh, I wouldn't doubt it. <laughs> yeah. We sit around and just drink wine. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not typically done in other countries. I'm, I've heard generationally, it might be changing a little bit, but for the most part, now they'll drink, let's say in Europe, they'll drink white wine or, or bubbly, sparkling wine as an aperitif, but there's usually food mm. with that aperitif. Right. Mm-hmm. They don't just sit and drink. And for me, earlier I mentioned cocktail wine. Cocktail wine is young, probably new world, because it's not acidic. It fills your mouth, it's viscous, and it's probably got a little residual sugar, even though you don't detect it. And it makes your mouth happy without food. So is there like a very clear, is it like taste-wise, like with young wine and aged wine, like you can clearly taste the difference? You can see a difference in the color. Really? White wine will become more golden or yellow. Oh, wow. Red wine will become more orange or brick, brickish color. Wow. Um, So it actually, there's this huge misconception that wines get bigger with age. It's really the opposite. They don't get smaller, but they get more elegant and they get more balanced with age. When wines are young, sometimes flavors really pop out with age, that calms down. It's kind of like chili on the third day. (laughs) Would it be wrong to make the analogy, it's kind of like going from a rock concert to a symphony orchestra? Oh my God, I love it. (laughs) Wow. I'm gonna use that. You're welcome to it. Uh, That's awesome. Okay, we're gonna do a Pinot Noir next to Pinot Noir. Okay. Um, I'm using the um, Chardonnay glass. There's hardly any wine left in there. Please don't ever put water in your glass to rinse it because you're never going to get all that water out and you're going to water down the next wine. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. This Pinot Noir I decanted because it's young. Sometimes people don't think young wine need to be decanted. I think the opposite. And it's from marine soil. And in a minute, I'll tell you what marine soil does to Pinot Noir. This is the same vintage, same winemaker, different vineyard. Hmm, a different color. It looks color, it's different color. Yeah. Um, and it's a different soil. This is marine, this is volcanic. Wow. And Pinot Noir, if I haven't already said it, is the varietal that's the most affected by everything that happens to it. Hmm. Soil, weather, sun, rain, wind, um, the French call it terroir. A lot of people think terroir is dirt. Terroir is not the French word for dirt. Um, terroir for the French is, again, everything that affected that fruit or that cheese. Okay. Cheese has terroir. Lamb has terroir. But again, everything that happens to Pinot, because it's so delicate, it's so impressionable, greatly changes it. Wow. Um, and you can see right here, this is just difference in soil. This vineyard is right out the window. Oh. Arborbrook. This vineyard, Corinne, is, we could see it from outside, it's just down the road. Wow. We actually purchased Corinne um, in 2019. It was originally planted in 1989. Usually red wine is a little bit, not of my weakness, but, you know, I generally lean towards white wine because right. I find them easier to drink, but today, today we'll drink it. (laughs) I love red wine. I am very much a red wine drinker. 
No, I can say right off the bat, these two are amazingly different. Yeah, they really are. I was just That's that. what the soil does to Pinot Noir. That's incredible. Wow. Yeah, they, it's really different. The marine <laughs> soil, the one I'm holding on the left, it's so much more tannic. Yes. Mm -hmm. These grapes, because of the faster draining marine sedimentary soil, are going to be slightly smaller than these, so you have more skin to pulp ratio. Mm -hmm. In the volcanic soil, it doesn't drain as fast. There's some clay. The grapes are a little plumper, so you've got less skin to pulp ratio. They do taste really different. Yeah. Yeah. And to me, I don't know about you, and everybody, mm -hmm. nobody needs to agree. <laughs> to me, the marine Pinot is more structured, more tannic, mm -hmm. and needs more time. And that's why I decanted it. It's not ready. This why it needs several more years in the bottle. Wow. The volcanic Pinot Noir, to me, I could drink now. And I did not decant it. It's prettier, more delicate. And then there's fruits, there's colors. Some people taste in color, some people don't. If you're not in this industry, you probably don't taste in color. But we would say the Marine has more black fruit. Okay, that makes sense. Blackberry, yeah. black cherry. Mm -hmm. The volcanic has more red fruit. Strawberry, cherry, yeah. red cherry. I can definitely see yeah, that. Me yeah. too, yeah, yeah. And then if you want to be really cool, you say you taste blue fruit. <laughs> what falls under the umbrella <laughs> yeah, of blue fruit? Yeah, what is fruit? that? I think it's just wine people trying to sound mm. groovy, personally. <laughs> wow. And the uh, wine professionals love to use the word minerality. Scientists outside of this business say we can't prove that the minerality of the soil gets into the fruit. Okay. Now, scientists in this business say bologna, we can taste it, we can smell it. When you're blind tasting for a SUM certification, that used to be, and I haven't been through any classes in about 15 years, but that used to be one way you tried to figure out where it was from. Was it black dirt, brown dirt, white dirt? Because we think we can smell it and taste it, and it would help us define where a wine was from wow. as far as the region. I, but I have clients that come in that say they think this is ready and this needs time. Because, to them, this is more acidic. Mm -hmm. I definitely taste that. But I think they're both very enjoyable. Yeah. Like they just taste very different. I prefer the marine soil, mm. the more tannic one. To each their own. There is mm -hmm. definitely, usually, a preference mm -hmm. for one of the other. Yeah. I really gravitate towards like the heavy, dark, And that's what flavors. that marine... As you described it, like cocktail wine. Like, I, I like to just sit down with a glass of wine, maybe a TV show, and yeah. just sip on something for the course of an hour. You know, all my life I've seen, like in TV shows and movies, people drinking a glass of wine and reading a book. Yeah. That does not work for me. <laughs> I can't, I love to read, but I can't have any alcohol. Mm -hmm. But I also read really fast. Maybe that's why. <laughs> I can't read as fast if I'm drinking. This has been a very fun time. Thank you so much for yes, thank you. letting us come thank out here and talk us. to you. Uh, you are absolutely a wealth of knowledge. <laughs> and delightful to talk to you. Oh, thank you. I am very interested in joining the wine club <laughs> or yeah. coming to the tasting rooms. I'm going to drag Michael with me. Mm -hmm. We're going to come here. Yeah. <laughs> I think I'm going to go to Cooper Mountain because it is basically so right in my gonna, backyard. What? And either club, you can go back and forth. Yeah. Okay, okay. Well, when are you at Cooper Mountain? It's, you never know. So we just have to email <laughs> you and be like, are you there? Yes. <laughs> yes. Text me, email me. Okay. Okay. We will, yes. yes. And I highly recommend that our listeners also check out maybe joining a wine club because it is a great experience. It is something far beyond what you can get from going to a grocery store and getting a bottle of wine. Uh, the types of wine you can taste, the small batch, I can immediately taste 
just in what we've had today, that it's on a totally different level of yeah. flavor to what you can get in a grocery store. And then coming here, the views are gorgeous. The so tasting great. room is beautiful. There's a great setup. The atmosphere is terrific. And you just can't experience this anywhere else. So I thank you very much for bringing us out here. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome to this week's Small Business Spotlight. Yes, welcome. This week, we had the pleasure of getting lunch at Five Star Family Burger. That's right, we sure did. They're out in Cornelius, Oregon. And full disclosure, I actually know the guy running the business over there personally, Gold Star Yim. Um, and yeah, his name really is Gold Star. That's so cool. No, it really is. <laughs> it's a cool name. Uh, we go way back. He's a great guy and he makes some fantastic burgers. But I promise I'm not biased. I might be a little biased. But I promise I'm not biased because I'm not the only one that thinks so. They have a 4.8 stars rating on Yelp. And Carla Dotti, a writer for Yelp's community blog, uh, wrote an article called 50 States, 50 Cheeseburgers to Sink Your Teeth Into, where she listed Five Stars Family Burger as the recommended burger place in Oregon. Wow, that's really impressive, actually. It's not just that, though. In 2022, MASH listed their Bulgogi Burger as one of the top 15 burgers in the United States. Whoa. So Gold Star and his parents run the entire show. It's really just kind of mom and pop owned, very much a small business. They're a Korean family, and their whole business model revolves around putting a Korean spin on classic American burgers and hot dogs. Right, right. So they're best known for their kimchi burger, as well as their Bulgogi Burger, and their kimchi and Bulgogi hot dogs. Right. I mean, let's talk about food, right? Yes. So what did we order today? We each got the kimchi burger, one for each of us, and then we split one of their bulgogi hot dogs. The number four, guys, the number four. The number four. <laughs> and what did we pay for all of this food? We paid $48, not including tip. Which, for two rather large burgers... Yeah, they were pretty big. ...and an incredibly large hot dog, it was a pretty good deal. And they come with fries for free. All of the entrees you get come with fries. They're crinkle fries, always crispy. Gold Star makes them extra crispy. <laughs> and uh, very fluffy in the middle. Very nice. Whole potatoes, high quality fries. Yeah, let's talk a little bit more about the kimchi burger. Yeah, so uh, like I said, it's sort of a Korean twist on a classic American cheeseburger. Bun, lettuce, tomatoes, onions, the right, usual fixings. Right. But then it also has their own homemade kimchi on top of the burger. Wow. And you get to pick your spice level. So you can really tailor that to whatever your tastes are. I like to go spicy, but <laughs> be warned, if you order it spicy, a gold star does not hold back. I'm a little bit of a wimp today, so I only got, you know, a five on a scale of ten. Mm -hmm. When I'm there, I usually get it eight out of ten. My burger was still pretty spicy for a five, not mm -hmm. gonna lie. <laughs> but it's good, though. No, it was like, really good. The flavor is always good. It was, I've never had a burger that has kimchi on it. Mm -hmm. but it was exceptional. Truly. The crispiness of the kimchi really does kind of add into the like lettuce, tomato yeah, crispness, it and it contrasts the burger perfectly. It really does. It was... Plus the flavor is, is amazing. The bulgogi burger also- I should go try that next time. Definitely worth a try. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it's another cheeseburger, but topped with bulgogi, like Korean barbecue on okay. top of it as well. Really? As an additional topping, yeah. Wow, that sounds really good actually. It is delicious. Should we go back right now? <laughs> I'm tempted to. Honestly, I'm tempted to go back and get another burger. Um, I don't think I have the room, though, because they were both quite large. And let's talk about how big that hot dog was. Wow. That was... No, it was... It filled up the entire cardboard, like, takeout box. Yeah. Let me describe this to you. It is a rather large hot dog bun. Like, not one of the small little Costco yep. hot dog buns. It was a sizable hot dog bun with four strips of bacon on it, an entire layer of bulgogi beef... Then sautéed onions, a rather large organic hot dog, and then 
topped with ketchup and mustard on top of all of that. Yeah. So it was quite a mouthful. It was a beast. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it really was. I only had like a bite of it because I could not stomach anything more after that big burger. But Michael took care of it. I downed the entire thing because it was just so delicious. <laughs> That's right. And I think really at the heart of why their food is so good is where they get their meat from. Yeah, I mean, meat's really important, right? Mm-hmm. They have a partnership with Carlton Farms, which is a local boutique organic meat producer. They're known for their organic pork and beef, and they really uh, stand for quality and ethically sourced meat that's just clean and tastes delicious. I mean, I definitely tasted the quality aspect in the Mm -hmm. burger. Like, it tasted really clean and fresh, perhaps. Mm -hmm. It was really delicious. Yeah, absolutely. All their meat is fresh. It's all locally sourced. It's all organic, and it really is worth a try. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. So in conclusion, thank you to the Yim family for having us out at their restaurant. We really enjoyed it, and we will certainly be going back soon. We certainly will. I'll be back, guys. <laughs> hey, Michael, what time is it? Uh, 3.40. Stop it. Come on, you know what I meant. Oh, did you mean it's time for SB News? I sure did. All right, guys. So our very first event that's happening on October 23rd is the Midterms Cookie Decorating event, hosted by SB Pure Ambassadors. It will be happening at 4 p.m. in KMC 262. On Tuesday the 24th, HRMA is hosting a Human Resources at Intel panel from 4.30 to 5.30. That's going to be in room 533, and I'm sure it's going to be interesting. On November 1st, that's a Wednesday, the SB Career Center will be hosting a Careers and HR panel event. This will be from 4.15 to 5.15 p.m. in room KMC 465. And finally, Beta Alpha Psi, the Honors Accounting Program, will be hosting a corporate audit, anti-money laundering, and cybersecurity panel Wednesday, November 1st from 4 to 5.15. The event is going to be virtual, and the Zoom link can be found from the Peer Ambassadors or at the KMC events calendar. And that's all that we have for you today, folks. Yep, that's the show. That's the show. Thank you so much for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed it, and we hope you tune in again two weeks from today. See you guys soon. Thank you.